Hello and welcome to Rural Powerhouse Week, day two. Join the CLA for the first Rural Powerhouse Week, a four-day programme of free digital events, including live interviews, as well as webinars, panel discussions, and free digital content, including blogs, videos, and podcasts, discussing some of the most pressing issues of our time. The Country Land and Business Association are dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. The Rural Powerhouse is a CLA campaign designed to unleash the potential of the rural economy. It aims to close the rural productivity gap, adding £43 billion per year while transforming the lives of millions of people who live and work in the countryside. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Rural Powerhouse Week Day 2. Today's podcast is focused on dissecting the latest news on Brexit and giving you an expert view on how the potential outcomes will impact trade deals for rural businesses in the UK. You'll also hear a lively debate that will reflect opposing views on the possible outcomes and may help to shape your own opinions as we head towards the end of the transition period on the 31st of December. The journey to secure a trade deal with the EU has been fraught for the last four years, ever since the referendum result. The deliberating over whether a deal is possible or not must be decided by the end of the year. CLA Public Affairs Manager Eleanor Wood joins us with the inside track on where the trade talks are headed. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Also, what does this mean for our political landscape as a whole? Are we moving away from Brexit dominating how people see the UK? Well, Eleanor, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, it'd be nice to start if you can give us an introduction to yourself. Thank you for having me, Alid. Um, So I am the political expert for the CLA. I work as a conduit between our policy officials and MPs and other officials and parliamentarians in Westminster. And I sort of gather all of this information together and work out what it means for the organisation and beyond. So no doubt you've had a busy few months and years of of late, but where are we now with trade negotiations with the EU? Well, so we're recording this um, just a little bit before the actual trade day of the Royal Powerhouse Week. So we still haven't got quite a decision yet, but we are really, really hitting crunch point that there needs to be a decision by the end of November. Otherwise, we're looking at the real reality of a no deal. But over the last couple of weeks, and I would say months, there has been a coming together of um, the UK and the EU to try and come to some kind of agreement. It is pretty much at the stage now with who blinks first, and whether that is the EU or the UK, it's quite hard to see at this point. And there's been a lot of posturing, hasn't there? So it's very difficult to see through some of that and fully understand whether negotiations are proceeding with a degree of success. 
It really is hard to see who is posturing and who is trying to make out to their people they are getting the best deal because we have to understand that each of the EU leaders have to go home to their own countries and say, I did the best on your behalf, the UK isn't getting a special deal. And that has been very applicable in France with uh, President Macron and um, fisheries. And so that they have to go to French fishermen and say, yes, you are getting a fair shake of the deal if UK can still fish in um, EU waters. So there has been a lot of posturing, but it does seem to be a melting down of relations. Whether the wording, I think that is the thing that we need to look out for, the wording of what kind of deal we've got, because whether it's an Australian type deal or a sort of Norway deal or, you know, or a brand new bespoke deal. I think it will all be in how it's packaged. And we've heard quite often about the sticking points around fisheries and state aid. How difficult are they to overcome? I think it really depends on what governments are willing to give. I think there will have to be compromises in places. So if we accept, you know, restrictions on fisheries, we will have to give up something on manufacturing or standards for example it's all in the nitty-gritty now and it'll be details heavy and it'll be something that everybody who is in this space will be looking at very clearly when a agreement is announced. Time is quickly running out what will need to be completed before the end of the year for a successful deal to be reached? I think that's a really good question. I think if we do get a deal, which we're all very hopeful of, it will be a very simple framework document. And that is what we'll need by the end of the year, basically setting out what each side expects of another. I think this isn't the end. I know we would all love this to say, oh, we're going to have a great deal. If we get a deal by the end of the year, it'll be a very simple framework that we then argue a little bit more over over the next coming years. But It is very much a, we need to sit down with the EU and say, are we going to have this deal or not? So will that type of framework be some form of a transition post the end of the year? So so to avoid that cliff edge scenario? I highly expect it will be, but it's very, the government have very much made out that they don't want that. And they want to be very clear that it is either we have a deal or we don't, and there's no further transition. But I think it will be a transition of sorts. And of course, negotiations have been ongoing for quite some time. Has either side had to compromise on their objectives to get this far? I think it's hard to tell because no side wants to say, I've given up things in order for this. There is all sorts of things that you have to look at. As I sort of said earlier, you have to return to your own government and say, we have a fair deal when um, selling our lamb into the UK or vice versa. I think we have compromised away from being very strict on what we will accept and what we will not. I think the UK has compromised on what they want from this deal. You know, we've accepted that we can't be part of the single market and we can't be part of the customs union. I think at the very start of this process, it was very much of we would we wanted to cherry pick being part of the single market or part of the customs union. And the EU have been very clear that if you are brexiting from the eu you can't be part of things so i think the uk has compromised to the point that they've had to look for you know a good tariff-free um relationship with the eu and if that means not being in the single market i think that's what it has led to 
And the deal, of course, covers uh, much more than just trade. It also includes elements around security. So there's several aspects that need to be agreed. Oh, there, there is so many aspects that they need to look at closely. Um, whether we're part of Europol, which is security-based, whether we still accept rulings from European courts of justice. And it's still very murky. And it's something that a lot of people like me are looking very much into and saying, what does this mean for security? What does this mean for standards? Obviously, in our sort of space, we will no longer be um, bound by the Office of Environmental Protections. So we need to see how the UK sets up its own measurement of uh, climate change targets in the UK, which they're intending to do via the Environment Bill. And whilst the UK is absolutely determined to regain sovereignty in many aspects, do you expect there will be inevitably a degree of alignment in some standards and regulations going forward? Oh, completely. I think we have very high standards in the UK. We have very high animal welfare and environmental standards and we share that with a lot of our EU neighbours. And I think in terms of food production and safety, we will continue to have those standards because I don't think the consumer would expect anything less and I don't think we would be able to trade into Europe if we lost those sort of standards. And over the past few months, we've heard so many different deadlines being stated and uh, they've passed and, and negotiations are continuing. Do, do you expect this will go down to the wire? Every EU deal goes down to the wire. <laughs> I don't think there's been any EU deal where everybody has agreed and gone home on time and said, this is a job well done. EU deals go until 11.59 because everybody's fighting so hard to get the best deal. I think we will get a deal to put my cards on the table, but I think we could be looking into December. But I think there is light there at the end of the tunnel. Because it would be a diplomatic failure on both sides if, if a deal was not uh, struck by the end of the year. I think it would be disappointing. I think the British government would be disappointed that they've been in this position for two years now where they've said, we really want to get a deal because the UK is quite divided between people who voted Brexit and Remain. But I think a lot of people feel that we would still like a trading relationship with the EU. So I think there would be significant disappointment if we ended up walking away. And with this deal, which may or may not be agreed, do you think this will be the end to the Brexit stroke Remainer narrative? I think there has been a lot of issues. I think if you look at 2020 as a whole, that argument has kind of been replaced because the world has shifted. COVID has sort of changed the way that we look at our place in the world and other countries as well. And that I think we are sort of moving on past that and looking at the big challenges that are going to come up next. It's disappointing to say, but it's hugely likely there's going to be a global recession, you know, in the near future. And I think people will be looking to the government for answers on that and that will become the next big thing and that we will slowly move away from being a Brexiteer or a Remainer and instead hopefully be a bit more united. Certainly we've seen a shift in focus the last few months with with the country dealing with a pandemic and, and moving away from Brexit dominating the news headlines. But but as a final question, where do you see the challenges? Uh, what are the challenges we need to look out for over the next year? I think the big challenges, if you look at policy, is that there are a lot of new bits of legislation, such as the Agriculture Act and the upcoming Environment Bill, that are replacing policy that we've looked at the EU for for 60 years. And it's 
jobs of people like me to make sure that that legislation actually works for rural businesses and the rural economy and that it's being implemented in the correct way because the agriculture bill as i'm sure everybody knows becomes implemented gradually over the next um seven years and it's really something that we need to keep on at politicians to make sure that it actually works and that it is doing the thing that they intend to do and sort of paying for public goods in the smart and the right way to give support. I think if you look away from our space, as I mentioned, there will be a recession. So we need to look at the way that businesses are supported, especially rural businesses, and whether countries become slightly more isolationist because of this and whether they look more into their domestic markets than instead of uh, trading internationally. Well, Eleanor, thank you for giving us an inside track on the trade negotiations and outlining some of the future challenges. And we're all waiting and hoping for that white smoke moment. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alid. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Rural Powerhouse is a CLA campaign focused on unleashing the potential of the rural economy. Its aims are a fully connected countryside, a planning system designed for rural communities, profitable and sustainable farming, investment in skills and innovation, and a simpler tax regime. Next, we will focus on the future with two economists, Dr. Charles Trotman, CLA Senior Rural Business Advisor, and Julian Jessup from the Institute of Economic Affairs, going head-to-head on the risks and opportunities that carving new trade deals occurs. We hope to leave you with the insider's view on trade deals and what this could mean for your business and the rural economy as a whole. Well, thank you, Charles and Julian, for joining us. First of all, can I ask you both to give a very quick introduction to yourselves, starting with you, Charles? Thanks. I'm Charles Trotman. I'm Senior Economist and Rural Business Advisor for the CLA. I've been at the CLA since 2002. My main responsibilities are all rural economic affairs as they relate to CLA policy, uh, telecoms, rural development, and at this precise moment in time, COVID-19 and Brexit. Thank you, Charles. And over to you, Julian. And I'm Julian Jessup. I'm an independent economist with more than 30 years of experience gained in the public sector, the city and consultancy. Uh, Until recently, I was also chief economist at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a a free market think tank. I I actually left that role in 2018, but I continue to support the work of the IEA 
uh, as an economics fellow, um, I do a lot of outreach for them, particularly with schools and universities on a pro bono basis. Well, thank you both. It's great to have your expertise joining us on this podcast. And we're looking at the future in particular around international trade. And if I can turn to you, Charles, first, how would you identify um, the risks and opportunities currently faced by the UK in seeking new trade deals? I think what we have to look at is a recognition that we have a major problem in the sense that the EU is our largest trading partner and obviously our largest market. And there is going to be a need for a deal. I think if we don't actually manage to get a deal, it's going to bring significant risk and very few opportunities, certainly to uh, UK agriculture. I think also, however, if we look at the opportunities that, that may arise, it will mean, whether we get a deal or not, that the agricultural sector has to be more resilient. It's got to be more productive. So the new situation that we're going to see ourselves in come the 1st of January 2021 will mean that farmers and supply chain will need to cooperate. They're going to have to collaborate far better than they do now. And that is a major opportunity in terms of a new agriculture for Britain. And also, if you look at it from an economic point of view, you look at there are going to be far greater opportunities for greater economies of scale and greater efficiency. And over the last few months, we've seen the importance of digital, the the importance of digital connectivity, and particularly how it works in the agriculture sector and in the food food supply chain. Now, given that importance, it's going to be absolutely fundamental for government to not only roll out effective digital connectivity, but also make sure that the sector is actually able to embrace it. And I think with with that particular tool in mind, if we can embrace it, then we can actually see more opportunities than we possibly could see now. And Julian, where do you see the risks and opportunities? Well, I think, first of all, that's a good way of putting it. There are both risks and and opportunities from from Brexit, and and getting the balance right is going to be absolutely crucial. Uh, In terms of the the risks, then the obvious one is that the the rest of Europe is is still by far our our biggest single trading partner. So if there is an increase in in trade barriers between us and and the rest of the continent, then that is clearly going to be uh, bad for, for businesses and for consumers. Against that, there are things that we can do to to minimise the the increase in in trade barriers, while at the same time taking advantage of of two big opportunities. Um, One is to lower trade barriers with the the rest of the world. We can strike our own new and and better free trade deals, or we can simply lower some of our barriers unilaterally. The second thing is to improve the regulation of the the economy. That that doesn't necessarily just mean deregulation. It doesn't always mean just getting rid of regulations, but there are lots of things that that we could do better. Um, I think the European Union is often quite bad at this. Uh, often regulation is best left to the level of the of the nation state. And uh, there are lots of regulations that the EU imposes on us that would actually do better without. What about the position with farmers? Because over the years, they've benefited from being inside the tariff wall of the, of the European Union, suddenly being exposed to a global marketplace. Could that present some, some risks for farmers here in the UK? Well, first of all, I wouldn't approach this from the point of view of thinking of what's best for particular businesses or, or producers, including the farming industry. I think ultimately good economics has to be about what's best for consumers. And if consumers are paying higher prices than they need to do in order to, to protect British agriculture, then I think that that is a bad thing. So I think we have to recognise that the interests of consumers should come ahead of, of, of those of, of farmers. That said, 
We know from other countries that have adopted free trade policies like New Zealand in the in the 1980s that there can be significant disruption when you lower trade barriers for domestic industries like like agriculture. So we, we do have to be aware of the of the potential risks for, for the agricultural sector if we do lower trade barriers and more competitive producers from overseas are able to, to outcompete. It's also, of course, important to, to protect food standards. We should always have a, a basic minimum of, of food standards and competition has to be on a level playing field on, on the basis of that. But, but at the end of the day, the, the benefits of Brexit will come from putting the interests of consumers first rather than any particular interest group on the producer side. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that comes back to the point I was making uh, right at the start in the sense that Brexit does give us an opportunity of actually increasing the efficiency of those who are involved in, in producing food. I fully accept the point that Julian's just made about consumers and the need for lower prices. But I think it's important to realise that UK government policy for years has been predicated on the cheap price policy anyway. I think it's also the case that it's very important that the government and the country doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What we want to do is to actually put in place mechanisms and structures whereby we incentivize uh, UK producers to actually produce as efficiently and as productively as possible. If you take away their markets, then we have a problem. And that's partic- particularly true for um, for the lamb market, for example. A lot of the UK lamb ends up in Europe and there's severe, significant con- concerns within the farming community uh, around the impact um, a no-trade deal with Europe might have on market prices. And in those instances, should the government intervene, Charles, there and put in some extra support measures? I think the government's going to have no choice because if you look at the, the figures and the data relating to this, if we have a no, if we come out of the EU with a no deal, then uh, lamb exports are going to be uncompetitive in in the European market, um, be primarily because of the tariff that's imposed on the export itself. So that export will actually come back onto the domestic market, which will lead to an oversupply of the product on the domestic market, which will reduce prices. Now, you can only go so far in terms of price reductions, you know, in in a sense, create a base before it will have a dramatically negative impact on land producers or land farmers. Um, So we're going to get to a situation that if prices drop too far, the UK government is going to have to directly intervene. Now, it could do it in a number of ways. It could put in price uh, stabilisation mechanisms of formal price policy, which we've had in the past. It could actually bring in public intervention, which is actually a key, what has been a key element of common agricultural policy within within the EU, uh, certainly since 1962. But I think the case is that you, if you don't want that market to collapse, and obviously nobody wants the land market to collapse, particularly for areas of the UK, such as Wales, which is so reliant on land production, um, the UK government is going to have to directly intervene in the marketplace. And Julian, where does government intervention sit within the principles of free trade? Yes, well, I, I'm feeling very uncomfortable about this because I, the whole point about free trade is to is to drive down prices and and improve quality by 
you know, increasing the, the range of, of, of goods and services that, that consumers can choose to buy. So um, if we, as a result of, of Brexit, there's an increase in the supply of lamb, for example, that drives down the price of lamb. From the point of view of consumers, that, that has to be a good thing. The question is always, you know, what is, what is the market failure that intervention is trying to correct? Now, it's possible as a result of this, we, we end up with fewer lamb farmers because other countries can produce high quality lamb more easily uh, at a cheaper price than, than we can. In which case, I would ask the question, so what? It is possible, of course, that there are sort of wider benefits from a thriving agricultural sector than just the production of food itself. I think the, the Welsh example is, is a very good one. And the, the, you know, the fact that you know, Welsh farmers um, produce what is effective sort of environmental benefit of, of, of you know, attractive countryside and it's good for tourism, it's, it's good for all of our way of life to, to be able to see um, you know, sheep on on hillsides and so on. So there might be a case for subsidising farming, uh, even if it's uncompetitive because of the wider environmental benefits. But but at the end of the day, we should be putting the interests of, of consumers first. And if consumers don't want to pay higher prices for, for Welsh lamb compared to the alternatives, then so be it. Um, as it happens, though, I'd, I'd be a, a bit more positive about the prospects for for British farming, even in the face of, of increased competition for uh, for two reasons. I mean, first of all, to the extent that the, the quality or price is better, then people are going to continue to want to buy British lamb and, you know, with good labelling and so on. I think other things be equal. People would rather buy, you know, Welsh lamb than even New Zealand lamb. But also there might be other ways in which Brexit can provide benefits for the agricultural community, you know, whether that's new and, and better regulations governing everything from, from GM foods to genome technology to the use of different types of pesticide or whatever else it might be. There, there might be ways in which agriculture can benefit from deregulation, which might more than offset any change in the sort of global market conditions as trade barriers are lowered. Yeah, I, I'm going to pick up this point about deregulation. I think Julian is absolutely spot on. Here, but I think we need to actually recognise that yes, there has been there is a regulatory framework from the EU because the UK is a member state of the EU. It applies those EU regulations, which have been agreed between all member states. But it is also the case that the UK government has this strange tendency to gold plate, i.e., to add more bits on to the regulation than is actually needed. So, in a sense, a policy of deregulation can actually be beneficial to the agricultural sector. Essentially, we're going back to what we had before, the minimum requirements from the EU. What I would like to see, and whether it would happen or not, is this whole mantra or effort that the uh, UK government, in the form of the civil service and obviously in the form of ministers themselves, this policy of actually adding things on gold-plating regulations, which frankly is totally unnecessary. But what about those regulations? We've talked about the, the freedoms that might um, come out of Brexit and our, our ability to use technologies which we haven't been allowed to use so far. But if we want to trade with Europe, surely we would have to produce at, uh, our produce to a standard which that market um, allows. So do we have to align our regulations to the markets we want to try and access? We already produce to those standards anyway because we have to comply with the minimum requirements or the regulatory approach undertaken by the EU. And we're talking about here um, essentially food standards, health standards, what are called phytosanitary measures and regulations. We already comply with this. Now, the UK, in a sense, you could say because of gold plating, has some of the highest environment, environmental and animal welfare standards in the world. And I think the UK has to be proud 
of that. I think the, the key issue that we would have is if the UK government was to diverge, diverge significantly away from that minimum framework that the EU already has in place and that we've essentially already agreed to. And one, you know, one element of that could be this whole debate and controversy over what happens to the potential of American imports coming into the UK if we had a free trade deal with uh, the US. You know, is the is the British public, primarily because the price of such US exports would be so low, or be far lower than, than we can produce uh, here in the UK, would it be the case that the British public would accept chlorinated chicken or hormone-produced beef or hormone-produced milk, for example, which we could have had in the 1990s. So it's a question of, and Gillian put his finger on it, We, given the fact we do have these high environmental and animal welfare and food safety standards already in place, we have to maintain them because, and coming back to this whole issue of the consumer is king, we have to retain the confidence of the consumer. And, and Gillian, you've made this point repeatedly around protecting the interests of the consumer. In terms of food imports, surely do you think that it's it's their choice whether they want to to buy hormone um, beef or chlorinated chicken? Is it is it their choice or should it be in, uh, set within the trade deal that those type of products are not allowed in the UK? Well, in general, I think it should be left to, to consumers. Obviously, there are some issues around that. You have to make sure that certain basic safety standards are, are met. So, I wouldn't want anything to be imported into this country that was in any way dangerous to consumers. I also think that consumer choice only really works if you've got the right information. So if, for example, we were to import chlorinated chicken from the US, I'd want it to be clear in the labelling that the chicken that you were buying was produced in that way. Partly because even if it is safe for human consumption, as you know, that the reason why chickens are chlorinated in the way they used to be in the US is actually about animal welfare issues rather than rather than human health. And so even if you are comfortable eating it in terms of your own health, you might still have been concerned about the chicken who who suffered to, to produce it. So the general principle of, uh, you know, consumer knows best only really works when the consumer knows what they're actually buying. But provided those basic protections are in place, you know, basic safety standards and, and, and good labelling, then this, I think it should be left to to consumers to, to decide what to buy. And, you know, if, if, if they do decide that certain types of product produced to American standards are, are significantly cheaper than they'd rather, rather pay for less for them, then then who am I to say no? Charles, how would you respond to that? Well, I, I think, yes, the consumer uh, has a right to know. Certainly the consumer needs to know what, what they're actually purchasing. Um, my concern is that if you look at the, the current economic situation we're in at the moment with the pandemic and what could happen, you know, in the short to medium term, over let's say two or three years, if it's if we're just basing this purely on price, we've got, you know, strong evidence that British consumers buy on price. They don't necessarily buy on the quality of the food. The majority of people will buy, buy on price. And if uh, we have an American product which may raise question marks in terms of animal welfare on the shelves, it will be the case that British consumers will begin to buy that product. You know, look at it like this. Why would the Americans and American farmers want direct access to the UK market? That, I think that's the question that we need to we need to ask ourselves. I'm concerned that looking over the history of how uh, consumerism plays out in this country, it is based on it is based on price. It's not necessarily based on on quality. And given the problems that we have in terms of well, the amount of money that people now have and will have in the future, 
they will buy the cheapest that is going in the supermarkets. It's, it's really as simple as that. It's a minority of people that will actually buy the more at the more quality end of the market. And we have to recognize that, that fact. Now, it comes back to the issue that if we can get UK producers to be more efficient, more productive, then their actual cost of production will go down and therefore a greater quality product will become cheaper in the longer term. And that's the point, um, Julian, you were making earlier. Through opening up free trade and opening up competition, it drives innovation, it drives efficiencies. Exactly. I mean, we, we shouldn't think about economic policy as protecting the existing businesses that we that we have. It should be about each country doing what they do best. Now, it may well be that our comparative advantages don't lie in sort of mass production of, of chicken for you know mass market. Maybe other countries can can do that better. Instead, it might be that our comparative advantage lies at the at the very higher end. You know, the, the really good quality, you know, Welsh lamb or Scottish fish or, or whatever else it might be. And if if that's the way the market is going to take us, then then so be it. Just to be clear, though, I do think there is a role for government in, in, in making these decisions. And if the British government did decide that it wanted to continue to ban imports of, of chlorinated chicken and hormone-injected beef and so on, then then I would say fair enough, because that's a decision that the, the British government is, is making and is going to be responsible to the electorate for that. At the moment, of course, we, we don't make that decision because we've outsourced it to, to the European Union. So I'm personally not going to die in the ditch for chlorinated chicken. I, it sounds horrible to me. Um, if the government wants to continue to ban it, then fair enough. The, the more important thing for me is that that decision should be made by the British government, responsible to British voters and ultimately to British consumers to explain why they should pay higher prices for, for chicken in order to protect animal welfare. But where, where does the, the environment comes into this? Is, is there a bigger picture? Clearly, there's competition on price and other countries might be able to produce certain products at, at, a, at a lower price point, but it might come at a higher environmental cost. Where does that come in? Well, I think that's a that's a fair point. But often, you know, those countries that might be able to produce cheaper than us are, are potentially, you know, relatively poor countries in in Africa or, or or the Caribbean and so on. And yes, it may well be that they can't compete if they had our same environmental standards in, imposed upon them. But I think there's a there's a broader issue there of how you help these countries to to grow and 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 develop. And uh, actually, free trade has a has a role here. You know, there's a sort of a, phrase you know trade not aid that you know by by trading with these countries and increasing the access that they might have to our markets then we can make those countries better off and then they can finally start to afford to invest better in improving the environment in, in ways that so far only sort of richer countries in the in the developed world are going to be able to do so i think it's important to to, to see this thing in the round um that by increasing trade with developing countries we can make them richer and then they can afford to make the sort of environmental improvements that we've already started to make in countries like the uk i think we need to be very very careful here about using free trade as an instrument of improving people's livelihoods let's say in the caribbean or in asia or wherever if you look at history free trade hasn't actually been able to do that and what it's tended to do along with the capitalist ethos is actually some people win win out some people benefit, but the majority of the people, those who are actually producing the goods themselves, don't tend to benefit from this. They don't tend to win out. That's one of the big advantages that the UK has in the sense that it can actually use its own high 
level and high level of standards in terms of animal welfare and environmentalism to actually use that as a mechanism to create a balance in terms of trade between the UK and other countries. And that needs to be a fundamental underpinning of future UK trade policy. Could I just disagree with that? Sorry, on on the point about how um, free trade has, has benefited poor people. Um, two counterexamples. One, one is that you know, the, the reduction in global trade barriers has probably listed more than a billion people out of out of poverty over the last few decades. Uh, admittedly, a lot of those people have been in one single country, namely China. But but China provides a great example of how market based reforms and, and and free trade have uh, have helped an entire population. Secondly, it, it it is technically true that when you open up an economy, a particularly a developing economy, initially some people benefit a lot more than others. So ironically inequality often increases in the early stages of, of economic development. But it's still the case that you know a rising tide lifts all boats. And even if some people benefit more than others, there's overwhelming evidence that, that free trade uh, and market liberalisation is good for the poorest people in developing countries as well. And I think that that's a, that's a much better way of doing things than uh, than simply giving people money. I, I think, of course, you should have international aid in addition to doing these things through trade. It's not necessarily an either or. But there's overwhelming evidence that opening up your economy to free trade and market liberalisation helps practically everybody, including some of the very poorest. One of the things I want to pick up on quickly is the impact of COVID-19. And, and clearly, the virus has had some disruption on trade. But has it changed the way people think about domestic produce? Do you think countries are now trying to become more self-sufficient in, in particularly food or other areas and less reliant on trade? What do you think, Julian? Um, I don't think it's made a huge difference. I mean, obviously, if we weren't in a sort of globalised economy, then we wouldn't have had a, a global pandemic. But the uh, the, the main reason why um, the pandemic has been transmitted from one country to another is not because of our trade in goods and services. It's the movement of people. So, I mean, if you wanted to roll back globalization to protect yourself from the next pandemic, then what you need to do is ban tourism and business travel. There's no reason to, to block the, the free flow of trade in, in, in goods and services. And, you know, actually, the coronavirus crisis itself hasn't caused a lot of disruption to the movement in, in, in goods and services. Um, the reason why trade volumes have fallen is because demand has dropped off rather than because there are increased frictions in trade. So um, I know there are a few people that said that, you know, we need to, to, to buy local to protect ourselves from disruption to supply chains because of pandemics. But as I say, that, that doesn't really make sense because it's the movement of people rather than goods and services that, that spread diseases. Yeah, I think what COVID-19 has shown is that uh, rather it's shown the integrated nature of the food supply chain. Um, we know in certain sectors, um, such as uh, the beef sector, the poultry sector, there have been major, well, certainly were major problems um, right at the beginning uh, of the of the pandemic. But Julian, you know, Julian is spot on. The the actual level of disruption has been far lower than a lot of people think, and COVID nineteen. Is, is is mainly um, is airborne. It's an airborne disease. If you travel around, um, you'll increase the infection rates. We, we now know that. I think, however, there's a there's a bit there's a bigger issue here, in that we know that COVID nineteen has essentially changed uh, the world, and it will continue to do so for some considerable time. It also shows that UK agriculture is very much reliant on migrant labour. We've got this problem. We had this problem during the spring, the summer and the autumn during the peak picking months and the harvest uh, months for this year. 
that we didn't have enough migrant workers because they simply weren't able to travel because of you know travel restrictions imposed by their national governments. The problem that we've got because of, of Brexit and coming back onto Brexit again is that because we've, we're no longer part of the single market, we no longer will have free movement of labour. So therefore, that will have a major negative impact on the ability of rural businesses and in particular food businesses to actually become more productive. I think one of the own goals of the government has been to essentially listen to the referendum result and basically say, OK, let's limit the number of people who can actually come into the UK from either the EU or non-EU countries. I think the argument that they have to be skilled is very much a subjective one. You know, the point I make to a lot of people is that if you work in an abattoir, for example, and you're cutting meat and you've got, you know, the large uh, chain mail on your hands and all, all over your body, a bit like the knights of uh, the Middle Ages, you, and you've got very, very sharp knives and very, very te- technical bits of equipment to use, you have to be skilled to do it. But people who work in abattoirs, as from 1st of January next year, will not be deemed to be skilled workers. So they wouldn't be able to come over to the UK and work in, in the livestock industry, for example. And what concerns me is that we're going to have a repeat next year of what we had this year, when we had a shortage of over 60,000 workers, that we were literally scraping the barrel to try and get as many workers uh, domestically as we could just to bring in the harvest. Julian, how damaging could labour shortages be for the economy as we try and recover post-COVID? Well, I mean, first of all, this is an area where I 100% agree with with Charles. I think there are there are lots of decent arguments in favour of Brexit, but uh, the opportunity to reduce migration certainly was not one of them. There's overwhelming evidence that you know migration from the rest of Europe has been a, a net positive for for the economy, and and the example of the agricultural sector is is a, is a very good one. So the one thing I will say is that is at least still in the government's hands, and that you know that there are things that can be done in terms of you know, specific rules for for the agricultural sector to to make it easier for people from from Europe to come over here. And I, I very much hope that the, the government takes that line. The whole point about having free markets is that should apply to uh, to the movement of people just as it must to to goods and services and, and, and capital so uh, I'm entirely with Charles there um, in terms of the you know the the risks and the relationship with with coronavirus well there are sort of some ways in which the coronavirus pandemic has a very small silver lining here obviously very small in terms of limiting some of the downsides of, of, of brexit so one example is that if there is you know increased disruption at the borders as we sort of introduce new new barriers to our trade with the EU then the impact of those uh, that disruption will be less if there's a, a lower underlying volume of, of trade to begin with labor short Shortages is another potential example. I mean, you know, regrettably, we are likely to see a big increase in, in unemployment over over the next few months as sort of as a result of the, the sharp fall in economic activity that we've seen. So there might be you know more British people who are willing to to do these the, the jobs in the agricultural sector than there might have been a year or two ago. And um, all of that though is clearly second best. I mean, we you know we we didn't want the pandemic, obviously, and we don't want to throw up unnecessary barriers to the to the relatively free movement of, of people. I also very much agree with what Charles was saying about this sort of arbitrary high skill, low skill distinction. I mean, for a start, it doesn't really seem to be about high skill or low skill. It often seems to be about high pay and low pay. 
Uh, also, if you look at some of the so-called low-skilled work, uh, whether that's in agriculture or, or, or social care, um, these seem to be the areas where precisely we do need more people. It's not obvious to me. We need a lot of so-called high-skilled, i.e. high-paid jobs, like you know, derivative traders in the city. And so we seem to have got it the wrong way around. And, you know, far more rather be getting people to, to come over and work in the so-called low-skill, but actually high-value-added areas like social care rather than additional and completely counterproductive barriers being thrown up against them. And uh, as we draw this debate to a close and uh, trying to end on a positive note, and this is a question I'll put to both of you, and that is, what is the most exciting news coming out of international trade currently, if I uh, turn to you, Charles, first? I think it's the opportunity that the UK now will have to try and uh, open up new markets, try and exploit those markets, and actually bring forward a properly integrated agriculture policy, which is you know, integrated with the rest of the rural economy within the UK. I think we've made the point before about the importance of environmentalism. We have uh, the government's agenda that is going to uh, reduce uh, the basic payments that farmers get in return for environmental payments that we fully agree with, because it clearly shows what the consumers and what the public wants is to actually see farmers manage the land. They are custodians of the land. What we need to do is get that mindset as a basic underpinning of UK trade policy. So we need to enter new markets. We need to actually promote the quality of, of British uh, produce. We already have footholds in the US market, in China, in Southeast uh, Asia. We need to exploit those. We need to market them better. We need to actually, in a sense, reinform and re-educate uh, exporters from the UK to, to other markets. We need to understand and recognise our weaknesses. Uh, you know, we've made mistakes in the past. We need to learn the lessons from those mistakes. But if we have a clear, integrated government policy in terms of, of trade, we can realise benefits from Brexit. It'll be tough. It certainly won't be a short-term fix. It'll be more a medium to long term solution, but we can benefit from it. And over to you, Julian, to finish. Well, yeah, I mean, two, two points for me. First is very much echoing what, what Charles said, particularly about the integration between you know, agricultural policy and, and environmental policy. Um, I'd very much like to see that market led, which, which basically means putting a sort of market value on some of the environmental benefits of, of what people do. And there's a whole sort of economic theory around this called, called natural capital, where you, you put a value on, on resources like, you know, a nice environment, good water quality and so on. And um, I think it's very important that the government moves in that direction. The second point, also hopefully a positive, is the, the opening up of the, of the global economy by the UK becoming a world leader in, in free trade again. Obviously, we've, we've not been able to do our own trade deals for decades because we've been a member of the of the European Union we've now got a chance to to strike out you know partly by improving on the existing trade deals that we have had as as a member of the EU so the the new trade deal with with Japan being an example of that but that also being potentially a gateway for for joining other free trade areas like the the Trans-Pacific Partnership in in Asia maybe even NAFTA the North American Free Trade Area there are lots of off the shelf trade agreements that we can we can join plus the scope for simply lowering trade barriers unilaterally i think a lot of that is is uncontroversial you know why do we have tariffs on the import of things that we can't produce ourselves like you know oranges for example so there, there are lots of things we can do unilaterally even outside trade deals that 
um, we can't do as a member of the European Union. So in summary, a, you know, a good comprehensive policy that looks not just at agriculture as something that produces food, but also something that improves the environment and also taking advantages of the new opportunities to do bolder free trade deals with the with the rest of the world that would benefit domestic producers um, as well as consumers. Well, thank you very much both. It's clear from what both of you said, in fact, the opportunities of international trade far outweigh the risks. Well, it's been thoroughly interesting, absolutely fascinating debate. And I'd like to thank you both again. Thank you very much to Charles. Thank you, Adit. And thank you to Julian. Thank you. And thank you also to our listeners. I hope you found it interesting. And until the next time, all the best and bye for now. You've been listening to the CLA Rural Powerhouse Week podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, there is an episode covering every day of Rural Powerhouse Week. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. The CLA's new weekly podcast, Rural Business Uncovered, will be released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search CLA on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join us again soon.